Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is what we've been studying. Let's pray before we get into it. Lord, thank you for how wonderful and kind you are, Jesus. You're such a kind and good God. Lord, you are so merciful to us. You're so faithful to draw near. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are, God. We bless you and praise you this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness to your church here, not just in the building project, but in the building of lives. Lord, we've seen so many saved. We've seen so many marriages saved. We've seen so much work happen in lives. And Lord, that is you. That is your glory, your honor, your praise, and it's your kingdom. And so today, Lord, we just want to be participants in your kingdom. We want to engage in your glory. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word. The Holy Spirit, you would instruct us about the person and identity of Jesus. We know that the one thing that we need in our lives is more of you, Jesus. More of you in our lives, less of us. So Spirit, you are the teacher of all things. Instruct us about our Lord and then move us in our lives to be more like him, that we might lead more to him. For your glory, we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And as I've mentioned several times, we have before us one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Realizing that all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ, the book that you have before you. From Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, the entirety of the book is about our Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage before us, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, is one of, if not the most clear explanation of the true identity of Jesus that we have in all of Scripture. It is powerful, instructive, and clear, and so it is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. For that reason, because it speaks so powerfully of who our Lord is, we've been taking it verse by verse. And so a couple weeks ago, we did verse 15 on a Sunday. We talked about what it means that he is the image of the invisible God. We talked about what it means that he is the firstborn over all creation. And then we looked at verse 16 last week, where we're told very clearly that Jesus is not a created being that he is the creator of all things, that everything was created by him, through him, and for him. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. He is the cause of all things and the consummation of all things. All things came into being by him and because of him. They exist for him and they will have their ending in him. In Christ Jesus, we move and live and have our being the New Testament says. And so if you weren't here for verses 15 and 16, you want to get those CDs or go online and listen because these messages build upon one another as we look at verse 17 today. But let's read verses 15 through 18 as we've done the last few weeks just to be aware of what we're looking at. It says in verse 15 concerning Jesus, And he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation, 
For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Now, last week, we saw some very important doctrinal ideas. That is that Jesus is the creator. And to discover that, you'll remember, we left Colossians and we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And we looked at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And we saw displayed there very clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Trinity. We saw there that God, when he created the universe, created a triune universe, space, time, and matter. Not a triad, mind you, which are three separate components that come together to form something, but a triunity. The universe is not part space, part time, and part matter. It is all space, all time, all matter, all the time. And so when God created the universe, he created it as a reflection of him, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them completely God God manifests in three eternal persons, but one unity, one essence, one being the doctrine of the Trinity. And so we saw in that exposition last week that Jesus is the creator, that God spoke all things into existence. And we know from John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And anything that came into being came into being through him. And the rest of Scripture agrees that Jesus Christ is the creator. Very important in our community today. That we grasp these doctrines, that we learn them, cling to them, and that we speak them into the world around us. Because there are in our community a ton of false ideas about who Jesus is. Everybody wants to reinvent Jesus. They want a Jesus in their own image. But that's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The Jesus Christ of the Bible, the Bible which has never been proven wrong or faulty or contradictory, the Bible which daily is shown to be God's true word in archaeological sciences and manuscript evidence by the study of history, the inerrant, infallible word of God declares that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Remember we talked about the cults, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who would not deny altogether Jesus, but they would seek to dethrone him. Mormons teach that he's the spirit brother of Satan. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he is a other God, a God, but not the one true God, Jehovah. Islam esteems him as a very important prophet, but Muhammad, they'd say, was above him. And they certainly wouldn't say that he is God. The New Age movement so on and so forth, seeking to not wholly deny the historical person of Jesus, but definitely dethrone him from his true identity. And verse 17 today for us clarifies even further who he is. It says in verse 17 that he existed or he is before all things. Before anything else was in existence, Jesus was the triune God. It's called the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, that he has always been. We know from science and from the Bible that the universe had a definite beginning. 
There was a moment where it began. But the Creator never had a beginning. He always has been. And when we think about that, our little brains start to twist, don't they? Well, then where did God come from? We understand that He created everything, but who made God? Nobody made God. God has always been. You say, I don't understand that. Don't worry about that. How can you, with your finite mind, understand an infinite God? If God were simple enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be worthy of my worship or able to meet my needs, said G.K. Chesterton. He is infinitely beyond us. He is high and above us. We can't comprehend with our finite minds an infinite God. But Jesus Christ always has been, and that's a clear declaration of Scripture. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 in the Old Testament says that his goings forth are from the ancient or from the days of eternity. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus says concerning Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Using that Old Testament name for God when God uh, revealed himself in the burning bush before Moses. And Moses said, okay, you're sending me to deliver my people Israel from Egypt, but who should I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am. And when Jesus came, he said to the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. A clear claim to deity. And then in John chapter 17, verse 5, our Lord says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This was the evening before his death upon the cross and before his resurrection. Father, glorify myself with you, with the glory that I had from eternity past when I was with you. Jesus clearly claiming to be one with God, claiming to be absolute deity, claiming to be eternal. God said in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Now, if Jesus Christ were merely another prophet, If he were merely a great teacher, if he were merely a man, he could never say, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Because God will share his glory with no one else. The Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus is the pre-existent eternal God. And that he created all things, himself being uncreated. Remember last week we spoke of the law of cause and effect, the scientific law of cause and effect, which says very simply, every material effect must have an adequate cause that existed before the effect. Every material effect must have an adequate cause that existed before the effect. And so the universe is a material universe. There's also the unseen realm, and we already learned in Colossians that he created the seen and the unseen. But matter must have a cause. All matter must have a cause that is adequate, something that is before it. Jesus Christ is not matter, therefore he didn't have to have a cause. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Matter cannot create itself, and so Jesus Christ created the seen and the unseen world. As it says in verse 17, our text, he is before all things. And then it says in the second part of verse 17, And in him, all things hold together. And in him, all things hold together. So, so far we see that Jesus has always existed. He's before all things. All things were created by him and for him. And now, very important, all things continue in him. 
all things continue in him by his power. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 gives us the explanation. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. The Bible teaches that Jesus upholds, literally that word means to maintain, to support. Jesus maintains and supports everything by the word of his power. Spoke the world into existence, and he maintains it with his power. That means that Jesus is not only the originating cause of the universe, but he is the conserving cause of the universe. He caused it to come to be, and Jesus also causes it to continue to be daily. This is called the contingency of all creation. The contingency of all creation. That all creation, for its continued existence, depends upon the Creator who the Bible identifies as Jesus Christ. What does this mean? That all things continue in him. What exactly does that mean? Well, last week, as I mentioned earlier, we saw that when God created the universe, he created it time, space, and matter. And then God put into place what was necessary to govern, to regulate time, space, and matter. He put certain laws into space. You see, the goal of God was to make a cosmos, an ordered system, as opposed to chaos, an unformed substance. The goal of God was to make a cosmos, an ordered system in which we live, as opposed to chaos, which is unformed substance. For example, gravity. Isn't gravity a wonderful thing? I can only jump so high because of gravity. I'm white, but still, that limits me, but mostly... (laughs) Gravity. I can only jump so high because of gravity. When God created time, space, and matter, he put certain laws into existence to govern, to rule, to regulate time, space, and matter. A great example of that is gravity. It keeps fixed things in their place, and it regulates the motions of moving things. Now, gravity and such laws are an expression of the mind of God. It's beautiful. Begin to think about how wonderful the mind of God is. We can't grasp it, but just think about it. He's so amazing in his creativity. An expression of that are these things which every day we take for granted. There's two kind of people in the world. There's people that wake up, understand that blood is pumping through their veins, that their little brain is the most amazing machine on the, on the face of the earth, understand that their heart continues to beat, Understand that when they put gasoline in their car, it always runs. Rely upon the fact that the sun will come up, that it will light and warm the day, that there's water to drink, which is perfect for the human body. There's two kinds of people. There are those that see these things and go, eh, and never get another thought. There are others that see these things and go, wow, what a wonderful God. What an amazing God that he could make us, that he could form us, as the Bible says, from the dust of the earth. What a wonderful God. There's two kinds of people in the world. The people that see the laws that govern the universe and think it is merely natural, and speak about that in a minute, and others who say, no, there's an intelligent creator that put these things into motion. Now, there is a uh, teaching, uh, we'll call it liberal theology, an aspect of it, which is called deism. 
Deism teaches that God created everything and then just more or less abandoned it. He created us, he created the world, he created everything and said, cool, looks pretty good. And then stepped back and does not interact with us. The Bible simply does not teach that. The Bible never even comes close to deism. The Bible teaches a personal God. A God who is infinitely and intimately concerned with his creation. He upholds, supports, maintains the ordered system with all its properties and laws. He's not only the originating cause, but Jesus is the conserving cause. He caused all things to be, and he is moment by moment causing them to continue to be. Consider, for example, the delicate balance of our solar system. The sun on the surface is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty hot. And we know that if we were any closer to it, we would burn up. We know that if we were any further from it, we would freeze. It seems as though we were placed in perfect relation to the sun. Consider the moon and its gravitational pull upon the earth and the effect that it has on the tides. If we were any closer to the moon, all the continents would be subdued in water twice daily. It seems that there was an intelligent designer that said, well, I'll put earth right here. Created earth before the sun, according to Genesis chapter 1. I'll put the sun just right here, just the perfect distance. How about a moon for light by night? Consider the delicate balance of our universe and you begin to see that there is something that is maintaining it, that is holding it all together. By the way, the earth is going around the sun eight times faster than the bullet from a gun. And it's not even windy in here. That's amazing. We're going around the sun eight times faster than the speed of a bullet. Any closer, we'd burn up. Any further, we'd freeze. If the moon were any closer, we'd all be surfing twice a day, all day. It's literally held together, and it is held together perfectly. You see, things in the universe like that just don't happen by accident. Jesus Christ created and sustains all things by the word of his power, upholding, maintaining, guiding, and propelling creation. Now, some would look and say, well, it's just all a function of natural cause, and, and they're simply laws of nature. And that's true. There are perfectly natural explanations for why the sun rises, for why the weather changes, for why rain falls, for why grass grows. But don't just stop at the natural cause. Understand that there was a one who caused it because the law of cause and effect says that every effect must have a cause. And so the Bible says emphatically that it is God who causes the grass to grow happens by a natural process which he and his beautiful mind created. But he sustains it. If he takes his hand off, grass doesn't grow. The Bible says very clearly in multiple places, it's him who causes the rain to fall. And so on and so forth. He is the one who holds together centripetal force and centrifugal force and gravity. All these things are literally held together by Christ Jesus. He is the energy of the universe. He energized it with his word. He's a basis for science. Everything that can be observed, repeated, and tested is something that he created. It is because of him. Think about for a minute the atom. 
The atom is the most amazing thing. Everything is made up of atoms. You understand that. Everything material that you see is made up of atoms. And in the atom is a nucleus. And in the nucleus, you guys know this. You took high school math. I'm not teaching you anything. Are positively charged uh, math, uh, science. <laughs> I ditched both of them when I was in high school, so... Uh, its nucleus has positively charged particles and neutrally charged particles. And so by every law of science, by the law of magnetism, and by Colum's law, it ought to all fly apart. The atom in its nucleus with positive and neutral charges, positive charges repelling each other, ought to all fly apart. Think of the ramifications of that. You are made up of atoms. Millions and millions of atoms with a little nucleus in the middle. And according to the laws of science and nature, as observed, tested, and verified, every nucleus ought to fly apart. That means that every one of us is a nuclear explosion waiting to happen. And it takes incredible power to split the nucleus. Right? What did it take to develop the atomic bomb, the nuclear bomb? What does it take to do that? Incredible power. And scientists look at the fact that that nucleus maintains itself, that it doesn't fly apart, that it stays together. And you know what they term it? Their technical term for it? What holds it together? A strong force. Yeah, it's a strong force. His name is Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus Christ is holding it all together moment by moment. In him, we move and live and have our being. Moment by moment, day by day, century by century, he is not only the cause, but he is the conserver. There is coming in the future a moment where he will let go. I want you to see it. Turn to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter. Chapter 3. We're going to zero in on verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, but I want us to just read in context. So let's start reading in uh, verse 3. 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You may have experienced that. If you're a student of Bible prophecy and if you share your faith, if you're an evangelist, you will have people say to you, well, you always talk about Jesus coming back. Where is he? Nothing changes. You're always talking about the end times. Where are they? Everything just continues ever since my great, 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 great grandfather died. The Bible told us that there would be mockers who would say, where is his coming? Look what it says in verse 5. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter here referencing creation and referencing the flood. It escapes their notice that God created the world, and then at one time when man was in rebellion, flooded the world's. I want you to note, very interestingly in Christianity today, that Peter was both a creationist and he believed in a literal flood. God bless him, amen, and so do we at this church. goes on to say in verse 7, But the present heavens and the earth by his word are being reserved. By his word they are reserved. There we see it again. But look, for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God told Noah, Noah, you better build a big boat. My spirit will not strive with man forever. 120 years, Noah, build the boat. And by the way, Noah, I love my creation. I love humanity. I desire that none would perish, but all would be saved. And so, Noah, the whole time that you're building the boat, will you please be a preacher of righteousness? Will you please let them know of the God who loves them, but because he is holy and righteous in his nature, does not want to deal with their sin any longer? And anybody that repented could have got on the boat. And now we're in the same situation in this world. God is saying, I love people. Are you kidding me? I made them. Psalm 139 says that each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. Chose the color of your eyes, shaped your chin, your nose, your little eye sockets, your thumbprint, which gets you in trouble when you break the law. He did that. Every single one is unique. It's not random chance. It's the Lord. He absolutely loves you. But there's this sin problem. You see, he's a, he's a perfect and he's a holy God. And he can't allow sin into the kingdom of heaven. And so he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. To pay a price that we wouldn't have to pay a price. To take our penalty that we wouldn't have to pay it. To pay our parking ticket for us, so to speak. Though it's much worse than a parking ticket. Because he so loved you and I. He offers us salvation freely. But if we refuse salvation and deny the character of God, then there only remains for us judgment. God is saying, don't be judged for your sin. The last thing God wants to do is judge us for our sin. That's why he poured it out upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He wants to give us blessings and gifts and eternal life. But he can't do it as long as we are in rebellion to him and have the sin problem. But when we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Forgive me and save me. At that moment, the Bible says we were washed white as snow. The greatest miracle the world has ever known. We're forgiven. But those who refuse that, the only thing left for them because they refuse to let Jesus take their judgment is judgment. The Bible says right now that Jesus holds the world together. He keeps it. But for the day of judgment... When those who have refused the love of God, refused the salvation of Jesus Christ, will be justly judged for their lives. Listen, I've lived a horrible life. You guys know my story. I was a drunkard and a druggie and sexually immoral and a liar and a cheat. And I've simply been forgiven by God. He's grown me a little bit by His grace, just like all of most of you here. When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're any better. It means that you have a better future. You've been forgiven. You have entrance into heaven. 
It's a wonderful thing. But there is coming here the day of judgment. And the first judgment, the flood, was with water. The next one will be with fire. We'll see it in just a second. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice regarding those who say, where is the Lord's coming? He's not coming. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, listen, with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. There is coming a day where Jesus Christ will let go. He holds all things together. There is coming a day where he will let go. And at that moment, every nucleus and every atom flies apart. And in essence, nuclear explosion. I'm not talking about nuclear war here. I'm not talking about doing Dave silly stuff. I'm talking about the God of the universe saying, okay, it's done. I gave man sufficient time to repent. And he lets go. And nucleuses do what they should according to science. They fly apart. And there is a melting with intense heat. When does that time come? We are living in the last days of the church. Jesus is coming for his church. The Bible says afterwards, the tribulation period. And then the physical second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Then what is called the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. After that time, the great white throne judgment. And then eternity, where there is a new heaven and a new earth. It is at at that entrance into eternity where Jesus lets go and all the elements are burned with intense fire and heat. I want you to see what happens after that. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 is where we see the entrance into eternity. It says in verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The first heaven and the first earth passed away because Jesus went, and he let go. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. There is a wonderful picture of our glorious future. People look around at the world today and they say, there's so much pain. There's so much suffering. There's so much destruction. How could there possibly be a good God? Listen, friends, you've got to read the end of the book. You've got to get to the end of the book. And the end of the book says that God will right every wrong. 
That in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no mourning. But God shall be with us and he'll wipe away every tear and he will tabernacle, he will fellowship with us. And the faithful and true, the yes and the amen, the first and the last, Jesus Christ says, come to me if you're thirsty for eternal life. I will give you water without cost. What a wonderful plan God has. What an amazing thing at this moment as we spin around the solar system eight times the speed of a bullet, as we don't fly out of our seats and we don't go too close to the sun and too close to the moon, how amazing is your body stays a bunch of atoms together that Jesus is just like this on your life, holding it together, infinitely and intimately concerned with every aspect of your life. Remember, we don't have a God who created it, set it in motion, and stepped aside. If we did that, it would have self-destructed. We have a God who is incredibly interested in our lives. And listen, if he can hold all things together, then that includes your life. All things includes your life. Don't think of just gravity and centrifugal and centripetal force and so on and so forth in atoms. It is your life, your relationships, your emotions, your pain, your hurt, your losses, your gains, your life. Jesus Christ can hold it all together. Perhaps today it seems like your life is spinning out of control. Unforeseen circumstances, stuff you never thought would happen and you've tried to do it your way, listen to me. It's time to do it his way. He holds all things together. If you will let him, he'll hold your life. He is the answer that you've been looking for. He is a longing to your heart. He is the satisfying of your thirst, and he is the filling for your hunger. He is what you've been waiting for, hoping for, searching for everywhere. It's in Jesus Christ. And if you will let him, then he will take hold of your life and he will keep it together for you. But you've got to let him. You see, part of God's sovereignty is that he allows man free will. The two are not in contradiction to one another, not by any means. It is an expression of the sovereignty of God that he allows man to make choices. That is a sovereign act of his. Just as he sovereignly placed the stars and the sun and the moon and the earth and as he sovereignly created you, he sovereignly said, and I will allow them freedom of choice. Why? Because God wants a meaningful love relationship with you. He could have made robots. He didn't want robots. We want robots. God doesn't want robots. He made you in his image with an intellect, emotion, feeling, and being to have a meaningful love relationship with him. If it's meaningful, it's got to be by choice. Otherwise, it's called rape. God doesn't do that. God gives you choice to commit your life into his hands. It's not in contradiction with his sovereignty. It is his sovereignty. In fact, he's so sovereign in your free will that when you choose not to give your life to your creator, he will honor your choice. He's absolutely sovereign within our free will. If you choose to deny the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, he will honor your choice, though it breaks the heart of God. He desires that none should perish. Jesus stood over Jerusalem and wept and said, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, how long I have wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. 
But for the believer, for the person who says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're a savior. I need you to save me. Be the Lord of my life. That person is not only satisfied and filled and now understands meaning, but they have the promise of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? If not, this promise is not for you. I don't mean God like God whatever. I mean God as defined in the Bible. It's not God whatever. It's not an impersonal force as Taoism teaches, as Zen Buddhism teaches, as George Lucas taught in Star Wars. It is not the force. It is Jesus Christ, our friend and Savior. He has a name. And he will work all things together for good for those who love him in the truth of who he is and are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? That you be saved. His purpose is that you would repent of your sins and be forgiven and enter into eternal life. If you become a Christian, God will work all things in your life together for good. Because why? He takes hold of it. Every force, everything in your life, he takes hold of it. He takes hold of it, just as he has a hold of nature. And he works it all together for good. Your mistakes, the horrible things that have happened to you and to me, the tragedies, whatever it be, the Lord is able to work it all together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But do you love him today? Do you hear the call today for salvation? Do you hear God saying to you, hey man, I made you, I love you. I'm perfect, I'm God. You're a sinner. It's not gonna work for us unless the sin problem is taken care of. And Jesus Christ did it upon the cross. He's not a far off God, but you can be a far off person. That's the bummer. If you choose to be far off from him, he'll let you do so. But it says in the book of Isaiah that he waits on high to have compassion for you. The God of the universe that holds all things according to the Bible is waiting on high to have compassion on you. Just waiting. Hey, come here. Come on, I want to help you. Come on, I want to fix it. I want you to know me. I want to love you. I'm waiting. Don't keep the Lord waiting. If you choose to be far off, he'll let you be far off. But the Bible says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. I'm going to pray right now. And in that prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Don't shift and move. This is the most important moment of the service. Decisions are being made that affect lives eternally right now. If you realize that you're a sinner and you blow it and life is not completely making sense, you need Jesus Christ. All you have to say is, hey, Jesus, I realize that you're the God of the universe that draped yourself in humanity to save me, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. I cannot get over the fact of the incarnation. That the God of the universe would place himself in the body of a baby? That we might be saved? That he would humble himself to that extent, rise from the dead, and therefore conquer death. If you need that today, all you've got to say is, Lord, I'm sorry I sinned. Forgive me according to what Jesus did upon the cross. And he'll save you. Lord, I just pray that you would draw men and women unto yourself this morning. It's amazing that you spread out the heavens and yet you know each one of us and you know our hearts intimately.
that's you this morning, just know you need the Lord. You know that He is the answer to everything. Just say something like this in the quietness of your heart. Jesus, I recognize you as the only one true God and Savior. And I realize that I'm a sinner. I do things that are wrong according to your standard. But I rejoice in the fact that you willingly went to the cross for me. And so God, save me. Save me. Forgive me and save me. Be the Lord of my life. Take a hold of my life and hold it together for me. God, I've tried it my way. I now surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.